It's really envisioning being strong about your vision so that you're not just giving your life over to your company, but you are pouring your heart and soul into it, but you're also creating that time and space to go professionally and to grow personally. I learned that early on, but I think if I were to do it all over again, I might've brought in another piece of advice, which was some entrepreneurs bridge, right? They don't quit their job. They go down 50% or they take a half-time job and kind of build it and quit. But always having time for myself is critical to the success of the business. Seaweed has an amazing future. Seaweed can be sticky between your toes. It can be smelly, flies around it. It is an amazing resource that's all too often overlooked because it's so bioactive. Where it's currently gaining traction is it is an amazing plant biostimulant. It is a soil conditioner. It's great for fertilizer, but also for animal feed. There's been a lot in the press about how seaweed can reduce methane emissions as a food source, even pharmaceutical to prevent and treat certain cancers. This is the language of business podcast to inform and inspire entrepreneurs. Anyone thinking about a startup or a business pivot or just getting underway and looking for some help. Hear from experts who've been there and done that. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. It's a labor of love when a woman conceives and founds a company not based on making money, but on a mission they're passionate about. In this episode, we look at Sarah Otto and Confianza, a mission-based small business working to break down silos and elevate the voices of those who are historically not heard and help nonprofit missions committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Then we hear from Anne Ruddy of Red Rose Development about the amazing powers and potential of seaweed. Here's Greg Stoller. Thank you, Don. It's a labor of love to conceive and then found a company, but what happens then? We're on location with Sarah Otto of Confianza and welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you for having me, Gregory. So what caused you, Sarah, to start Confianza in 2015? I'm a former educator. Actually, I consider myself a lifelong educator, but now I'm an entrepreneur. I like that. It's a fun yes. play on words because you never stop being an educator, I don't think, especially if you're a business leader in any industry. However, for me personally, my journey was as a classroom teacher and then living and working in Latin America and going into the field of bilingual education, as well as supporting students and families who are learning English as an additional language, what we call English learner education or ESL or multilingual learner education. And for me, it was an interesting set of moves from the classroom into teacher leadership positions being asked to teach other teachers, and then learning about the fields of professional development and continuing education. Like many teacher leaders, there's not always a lot of other places to go outside of being a coach, which is basically getting in sort of a middle management position or becoming an administrator, which I do not want to become an administrator. I want to work on curriculum, instruction, supporting students, supporting teachers. So again, like many educators in my track, I ended up teaching in the summer, consulting, teaching adjunct graduate courses and the like. And then 15 years into my career, I decided to make the jump outside of the red tape, as I like to call it. So moving outside of being a district person, employee to working in a nonprofit. What was that like when you moved from one side of the red tape to the private sector? It was really interesting moving from one side of the red tape, both in public and private education to working. Um, for me, it was a nonprofit and then it was starting my own company. And what I found was there's a lot of freedom 
for myself personally, in terms of having a better work-life balance and being able to pursue business and learn a lot and grow in many ways wasn't totally available to me, even as an entrepreneur mindset within these institutions. For me, it was also about having the impact that cannot always have themselves. They really have complex work there. So for me, it was exciting because I could work outside of the red tape and help come up with solutions. First, the nonprofit where I worked and, and led some projects with the Gates Foundation and other interesting networks. And then I realized, wait a minute, there's a business here. <laughs> so that's when I started the next chapter. And how did you get through not only that chapter, but likely the three or four that followed in terms of ramping up on the business side of things, regardless of whether it's for-profit or not-for-profit. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to learn. And I think I did learn a lot when I was an employee within the nonprofit space. And many entrepreneurs thought, okay, my idea that I have for starting my business will carry me. That's only partly true, right? As you're saying, Gregory, there's so much to learn in terms of the business operations and development and, and all the pieces that go under that umbrella. I sought out a mentor immediately because as a district mentor and as a teacher mentor in my earlier part of my career, it was a very easy resource to go after. And I worked through work, I still do with the Small Business Administration SCORE group out of Boston. So having mentors to help me with kind of in the moment coaching and then taking classes whenever I could and, and taking advantage of all sorts of resources out here in the Boston area and elsewhere. When you decide to launch, where did you initially receive your funding from? People ask about where I receive my funding from all the time. And what I tell them is that my clients are my investors. And that is true. School districts, state educational agencies, individual teachers seeking professional development literally are investors. I did try to get startup funding in different channels early on in Confianza's startup days. However, we don't have what a lot of firms consider to be ROI in the fact that it's not the same kind of numbers as would be like, say, a published set of textbooks or an app for the classroom. We're into human capital development. And unfortunately, that's not always seen as the way that it should be, in my opinion. You can measure increase in teacher skills and leader skills, but it's not as attractive for funding. So pretty soon I learned that. And instead of just trying to run my head against a wall over and over again, I said, I'm just going to do the best I can with what I have. And here we are. And I've worked really hard to keep lean and mean. Good for you. But being lean and mean is only part of the success quotient, right? So what would you say is your competitive advantage with respect to other firms and high energy individuals like yourself probably trying to do the same thing? Yeah, it's interesting that you ask about people trying to do the same thing. When I started, our model was pretty unique. And that was one of our competitive advantages. When I started in 2015, it was all about online professional development. And that was something that was not happening, surprisingly, as much as you'd think at the time. And so that helped us get an edge in the market for continuing education hours, as well as becoming certified in different states, Gregory. So that really like a go-to provider for a lot of educators getting relicensure. However, I believe what the true key to our success is the over 90 percent referral rate. So we don't really do a lot of advertising. It's really word of mouth. And often there's more work than my team and I can keep up with. There's a lot to be said, I think, when you get referred. I try to take solace in that we're making impact, we're seeing our impact, and then people can feel confident sharing what we do with others. What keeps you up at night, Sarah, most about the future of Confianza? I think number one, what keeps me up most at night is where the field of education is going. Before the pandemic, Gregory, I was really feeling that we could have an impact in the corporate space and started to do a little consulting for corporations that are working with multilingual populations. 
that keeps me up at night because I believe that we have a lot to offer beyond racial diversity, equity, and inclusion training. There's often what I say, really an exclusion around multilingual people, whether they're your clients, whether they're your employees, what have you, there's a lot that's lumped into diversity training that doesn't get into the nuances of helping people that are learning English. And so that keeps me up at night, kind of two things. Where's education going? Because there's a lot of problems in the institution of education. And then number two, could we, should we start to explore now that the pandemic is waning, we think, should we go back to where we were pre-pandemic and start to explore branching out of education? Quite honestly, I like to have a challenge. So I guess in summary, what keeps me up at night is having that sweet spot of a challenge and having revenue and having an impact. The focus of this episode is small business success for companies under $2 million right now. Where do you see your trajectory being that could get you to $2 million in sales someday? That's exactly what we're working on right now. I just hired a CEO, CTO that really is helping us transfer all of our IP to a secure platform to really systematize our model of not just internal management of our contractors who lead services alongside me, but also to really replicate that model. Pre-pandemic, I was really growing so quickly that I couldn't keep up with it. And I think that was sort of a blessing in disguise that things scaled way down. And now I get to start over in a sense. And so with my new team, we feel really confident that we can do our model in such a way that it can be replicated and potentially even sold. Do you like the fact that you've brought in that famous professional management person and you're no longer the CEO of your own firm? <laughs> it's so funny that you asked that. I know it's such a developmental phase for all of us as business owners is letting go. It's been a real labor of love, as you mentioned earlier, Gregory, and I am working very hard to delegate, to let go, and to be strategic in that way. I'm confident that it's the only way forward for Confianza. So now that you've brought in professional management, what do you get to focus on day by day? There's so much that I focus on day to day. I'm the main content deliverer. I'm an author. I have a book. You know, I'm out on the circuit now with COVID waning, traveling again, speaking, keynoting. Um, leading the contracts that we have day to day that are year long with our clients. So there's a lot of work there, but my main priority for this year. And I think for the next couple of years is to work really closely with my internal team, as we mentioned, but then also really refine the model so that it doesn't have to be me, the IP, <laughs> that the IP is the company. And that's really back on track with our strategic plan. Sarah, if you had to go through it all again, what single piece of advice would you have for someone else who's trying to do the same thing? A couple of pieces of advice come to mind, but let me start with this. It's really envisioning being strong about your vision so that you're not just giving your life over to your company, but you are pouring your heart and soul into it, but you're also creating that time and space to go professionally and to grow personally. I learned that early on, but I think if I were to do it all over again, I might've brought in another piece of advice, which was some entrepreneurs bridge, right? They don't quit their job. They go down 50% or they take a halftime job and kind of build it. I didn't, I kind of jumped off a cliff, so to speak. I took the plunge and quit. So part of me wonders what would happen if I would have had a better financial bridge, so to speak, from working full-time to starting at my own business quite honestly did take some time, but then really holding fast to that vision of what does balance look like for me? It's a constant process trying to refine that picture of my ideal week, my ideal month, but always having time for myself is critical to the success of the business. But there's some interesting tension there, right? If you had traditional investors, not other educators and your own clients who were your own sources of human and actual capital, right? They would expect you to have quit 
and focused on this full time. But in this model, it sounds like you almost had an option that you could do it as a bridge, as you put it, or full time. Looking back on it, are you happy with your decision? I am. It's funny because I was talking earlier about trying to seek funding and feeling kind of left out of the pie. And in retrospect, you know, seven going into our eighth year now, I see people that I know and other companies, especially in the edge tech space that have been able to grow and scale and have wonderful impact in schools. However, when they get sold or when things shift and grow and they are beholden to the VCs and whatnot, there's a different affect. I think that's the only way I can explain it. And that's just not me. I've decided this has all worked out for the best, even if it grows and it does get to the place where it can be sold and leveraged by someone else, I need to be able to let it go. For the meantime, I've been able to keep the feel of the company, right? Keep the relational aspect. The word confianza means mutual respect and trust in Spanish and other Latin-based languages. So having that feeling around my company has been really important. So all to say, I think it has been the right path. Sarah, thank you very much. I love your attitude. Thank you very much. Sarah Otto, founder of Confianza, talking about starting and now bringing in professional management to realize her vision of growing potentially $2 million. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. Next up, we hear from Anne Ruddy about the amazing powers and potential of seaweed when the language of business continues. I didn't even realize what it meant to be in a top tier business school until my first day. And I just really, for the first time, felt like I was in a place where everybody knew what was going on and everyone was incredibly driven to study this and perfect this field. And so I think being in a top business school really means that you are finding the barriers and the edges of the field and pushing them a little farther. And that's what Questrom has taught me over the past four years. The curriculum at Questrom is really helpful because you get to not only study the basics of business, such as accounting or marketing, but you really get to dive further in and to see applications of the health sector and how business applies to sustainability efforts around the world. They really want us to kind of focus it on four emerging areas, and those areas were healthcare, security, sustainability, and technology. Those are really where the jobs are going to be. They really want us to come out from the Question School of Business and, like I said, be able to work in any area of the industry. Interested? Go to bu.edu slash Westrom. You're listening to the Language of Business podcast. We heard about Confianza and its mission to help DEI efforts. Now we'll hear from Anne Ruddy about the amazing powers and potential of seaweed. Back to Greg Stoller. Thank you, Don. At a nice summer afternoon at the beach, you see seaweed come and go in the ocean and probably don't think much of it. But then you haven't spoken enough, uh, it seems, to Anne Ruddy. She is the CEO and founder of a company called Red Rose Development, whose focus is almost exclusively on seaweed. And welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you for inviting me. How did you transition from a project management background to one of innovation and then becoming an entrepreneur? I have an innovation background in any event. Project management supported me in pushing forward with innovations. I designed the system that you see on passports and driver's licenses, working in anti-counterfeit. The transition into seaweed was more to do with moving location. I moved to Ireland, which was where I was raised. Ireland was always home for us. But much as my father left in the 1950s as an economic migrant, when I returned to my native Balmollet, it was the same situation, perhaps worse. Children, highly educated young people were migrating away from the most beautiful area because there was no work, there was no opportunity. So I decided to try and create something that had value and longevity. 
and working with a natural resource such as seaweed seemed to be a natural progression. What exactly does Red Rose Development do with seaweed? Right, Red Rose Development is about creating value from seaweed. I'm sure people have been on the beach, as you've mentioned. Seaweed can be sticky between your toes. It can be smelly, flies around it. When in reality, the reason that is happening is because it's so bioactive. It is an amazing resource that's all too often overlooked. Where it's currently gaining traction is people are discovering, as back in the olden days, it is an amazing plant biostimulant. It is a soil conditioner. It's great for fertilizer, but also for animal feed. There's been a lot in the press about how seaweed can reduce methane emissions as a food source, as even pharmaceutical to prevent and treat certain cancers. Seaweed has an amazing future, but what Red Rose does is seek to protect wild stock of seaweed because we cultivate. We cultivate in modulated systems that will turn fishermen into ocean farmers. We modulate it, we break down the barriers to market entry by removing the significant costs for infrastructure by negotiating planning permissions and various license and regulation permissions. But also we take away the significant barrier of the science, finding the right seed for the right area, ensuring that what we have is actually suited to that particular environment, marine environment. But also increasing volume is one side of the coin, but increasing value is also a significant point that we need to focus on. We need to make the value chain work for the fishermen, but also for the processors and then create a scalable model so that we can take seaweed into everything from food, feed, fertilizer, even biopolymer and biofuel. And you've been generating revenue so far. Where is it coming from primarily? Primarily, when I've been growing seaweed, we've been selling into the food sector. We dry the seaweed because it has to stabilize. As I mentioned, it's bioactive and it decays within hours. The process of drying and transporting it to where it needs to be dried is carbon intensive. It is also very wasteful because it depletes the moisture and depletes a lot of the micronutrients using heat. Our system is located close to shore. We process immediately from the ocean and we've captured the moisture and the micronutrients adding value. Our outputs at local level would be liquid seaweed that is treated in a way that we've released those nutrients by breaking the cell and releasing them into the liquid and creating a value chain through the liquid, but also retaining the quality of the dried stock. So we have dried and liquid seaweed in modulated units. Fascinating stuff. The focus of this episode is going to be on small business growth to get potentially to $2 million in revenue. What do you think that path looks like for Red Rose? Right. Well, what we would see as the future for Red Rose is the system for processing, much like the system for the floating farms, is modulated. It's a cookie cutter approach. What we have is something that's fully replicable, not just in Ireland but anywhere there's coastline with interesting seaweeds, and that's pretty much anywhere. We have this system, which is a processing system that produces liquid and solid. So if you picture back in the day where dairies would collect from farmers with small amounts of volume, we collect daily from a number of these units, let's say 10, 
because we're looking at clusters, we would then homogenize that volume daily and look to create that supply chain into the various sectors such as food and feed and pet food and animal feed, whatever it might be. But then once we get to that scale, we're looking at clusters of 10. So we could have 10, taking Ireland as an example, we would have 10 in one region, in one county, 10 in the next county. The scalability will be very dramatic. And who owns the seaweed? Is it the product, if you will, of a municipality, of a natural resource? Are there any concerns that if Red Rose suddenly runs into that hockey stick of growth that somebody's going to say, hey, we've got to talk about this. The seaweed isn't free. Absolutely. And the seaweed isn't free. And we need to be aware of regulation, policy, ownership. And that is something that Red Rose would do on behalf of our clients, who would be the franchise holders and the fishing community. We need to be aware of our resource. We need to make sure that we only take sustainable amounts from the ocean. These units are controlled in size to ensure that what we take is fully replicable by the ocean. We have to be sensitive because whilst it's growing in the ocean, it's absorbing CO2 and nitrates. It creates a marine habitat and we cannot rape and pillage our seabeds. So we have to be sensitive. And that's what Red Rose is all about. It's growth for communities, for establishing a healthy ocean, but we have to do it with sensitivity and environmental awareness. Where do you see your sources of funding originating from? Is it a governmental source, a private source or something else entirely? It's a blend, blended finance. We've got match funding committed by the Irish state. There are significant grants across Europe that we're applying for, but there is a fantastic opportunity for investors to come on board at this early stage and support us, not just with money, but also with advice, with strategy, with, with skills that we are seeking that will help us drive this. Project. As you move from one country to another or one shoreline to another, does the composition chemically of what makes up the seaweed change? And if so, how does that affect your processes? Well, actually, I think if my calculation was correct, just by the coast of Balmollet, where we are operating, there are 326 different species of seaweed, only seven of which we know to be commercially viable. And our system is designed so that it can process a range of species. Again, not just in Ireland, but could be anywhere. The reds, greens, and brown seaweeds, which is the general sort of definition of the categories, will change, not just in species and composition, but also by age of plant. The structure will be different, the composition will be different across the season. The processing and homogenization and quality validation is absolutely essential to make sure that what we supply to our customers, downstream customers, is what they're looking for in their product. And thank you very much. Thank you, Greg. Anne Ruddy, the CEO and founder of Red Rose Development, dialing in from the UK. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. Support for the language of business is from Boston University Questrom School of Business. We're available wherever you get podcasts or ask Alexa. Social media is by Jennifer Powell of the Excellent Writers Group. Music by Randy Barth of Oswee Media. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio production, editing, and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.